This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, Amy Raup and I unpack the science of epigenetics. In case you have not heard of Amy, she is a renowned women's health and wellness expert and the best-selling author of the books, Chill Out and Get Healthy, Yes, You Can Get Pregnant, and Body Belief. A licensed acupuncturist and herbalist in private practice in New York, she holds a Master of Science degree in traditional oriental medicine. After implementing the philosophies in her body belief book myself and experiencing incredible results, I wanted to have this expert share with you the science that acts as a foundation to her book. Please join me in welcoming Amy Raup. So I wanted to interview you because I was at a funeral of the reproductive endocrinologist that helped me get pregnant, Dr. Braverman. It was a very sad day, but a lot of the patients went and I met one of your former patients who had shared with me the body belief book, as well as the diet that she did. And apparently it made such a transformation with her that even Dr. Braverman, I think, brought you in to start working with his patients and I was sold. So I think a month after his funeral, I started using the the things you discuss in Body Belief and I even found a transformation with me. So I said, okay, if I'm here trying to educate women on how to um, be empowered with their own health, I wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to talk to you so you can share all the wonderful things um, that are in your body belief book. And I know today we're going to focus on epigenetics. So maybe we could start with explaining what the science of epigenetics is for someone who may not understand what that is. You know, it's been around for probably, or the conversation of epigenetics has been around, I guess I'd say a little, about 15 years. So when I wrote my very first book, Um, which came out in 2010, called Chill Out and Get Healthy. That's the first time I had that conversation about epigenetics, which basically means what we once thought about our genes being set in stone is not true. And so just because we might have a genetic predisposition to a disease or a manifestation of something in in our health doesn't mean it has to actually show up. And... I, you know, I was a research scientist before I became an acupuncturist and I was, I was at UCSD um, with plans to go to medical school there. And that was when they were mapping the genome. It was like the hot time, you know, um, about 20 years ago when all this was really in the forefront talking about genetics. And they thought once we map this genome, that's it. We'll be able to cure every single disease. We'll know what you're going to get this. And then that's when they kind of started to realize, oh gosh, actually your genes don't actually determine the, you know, what they would call the phenotypic expression, right? So the the disease state actually physically manifesting itself. And so this conversation of epigenetics started to come up where it's basically how you live your life determines whether these genes turn on or turn off. And that's what actually 
causes this genetic manifestation. So you might have a predisposition towards, say, breast cancer or endometriosis or diabetes, but the choices you make, so the lifestyle choices you make, and it basically what they boiled it down to was sleep, stress, and nutrition. Um, those three things can impact whether these genes turn on or turn off. So again, you could pass on these genes, of course. So the same thing would happen in your offspring, right? But that it, it's not a guarantee where we used to think it was an absolute guarantee. Mom has heart disease. You're definitely going to have it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's just not the case. We're not seeing that clinically. There's only 5% of diseases are actually heritable and the rest are all basically epigenetic influences. And what fascinated me the most about it was that's very much in line with Chinese medicine, right? So I'm a practitioner, I'm an acupuncturist by trade, but that means I have a master's of science degree in traditional uh, Chinese or oriental medicine. You can, they're interchangeable. And we've been talking about this same idea for thousands of years that it's, it's how you live your life that determines your health, not your genetics that determine your health. And, you know, that we would say if you live in accordance with the Tao, so you're living in accordance with your eating within with the seasons and you're getting enough rest and you're you're expressing all of your emotions and, you know, um, in a control, not controlled, in a, in a healthy manner that you will age appropriately and you will be free of illness. And so this is very much in line with what then Western research started to show when we thought, oh, we could map this genome and that's it, we'd solve everything. And that's actually not the case because the genes are much smarter than that. It's not that simple, basically. And so there's all these environmental influences. So that could be the toxins in our environment. That could be stress levels. That could be poor sleep. That could be um, not enough exercise, not enough you know, nutrition, unhealthy relationships, trauma, trauma from childhood is a big indicator of uh, genes turning on and turning off. There's a big epigenetic influence that happens with significant trauma. And so that's what the research is now, you know, and, they, and this is very much in the know at this point, because we're, like I was saying, it's about 15 years that this conversation's been going on, maybe 12, but I think about 15 and you know now we're all seeing that it's it's really has a lot more to do with lifestyle than anything else. So again, the the predisposition might be there, but it doesn't mean that that's your your destiny. And when you talk about turning it on or off, like is it a like you literally could just like can you explain a little bit about turning it off and on and how like the sleep and stress and nutrition can impact um that so like as an example to be overly simplistic like can you get better if you start getting more sleep and does it actually transition to more positive and then if you start not sleeping again you could probably have some more negative impacts like it is is it as simple as that and i guess how perfect do you have to be with controlling these things I think the level of perfection, which I think was with an asterisk of like, we all should just do the best we can do. But yes, um, I think term is, is based upon the, if you will, how strong the predisposition is, right? So some people have a little more leeway than others, I think is a good way to look at it. But yes, the best thing about, you know, this epigenetic conversation is that it's, it's shiftable. So you could have been headed in like the not so healthy direction for the last 10 years and you can turn it around. 
you know, I think, I think the best way to look at it is how we talk about, oh, you can heal from heart disease. You can, you can reverse your diabetes, right? You can, people recover from cancer, right? You know, there's these things like people manage their MS without medication, right? Or, you know, their autoimmune conditions, people get off their meds, they, they get better, which doesn't make sense if it was purely what we thought that like, okay, these are your genes, you're going to get rheumatoid arthritis. And this is it. Your only option is, you know, Humira or whatever it is. Like, that's it, black and white. We're not seeing that because we, what we see is, oh, okay, so here's this rheumatoid arthritis patient or, you know, psoriatic arthritis patient who's been very sick their whole life. You know, I have a case that I'm thinking of, for instance, in my clinic right now. She was diagnosed at a young age. Well, they misdiagnosed, of course, for a while, and she suffered greatly for many years until they figured out the diagnosis. She could barely walk. She was in so much pain. She was covered in psoriasis, and and her joints had the psoriatic arthritis. Um, And now, at the age of 40-something, she's basically off all her steroids. She takes uh, her Humira at at a lesser frequency. And it all has, and she can exercise now. She's, you know, she got, she has no psoriasis anywhere on her body. That, that doesn't seem to make sense if we were just purely, this was a genetic predisposition. But what she's done over the years is you started getting into acupuncture, right? She changed her diet. She, she changed her lifestyle. She's worked on the emotional trauma that was significant in her childhood from having this disease. So the, you know, that's a perfect example of, yes, this is reversible. And it's basically like, I guess, to keep it in layman's terms, almost like oxidation in the body. So there's, you know, and I like an oxidation, I think in my books to like rusting, you know, things, things can just, you know, age before their time if they're not properly taken care of. But then when, you know, maybe you can't really undo the rust in a car. So maybe that's not the best analogy, but you know, but then maybe a plant is a better analogy, but then you could go in and you could change the soil and you could give this plant another life, even though 90% of it is dead, right? You know, so you're going in and you're changing the, the internal, the, sorry, the external environment, you know, the nourishment for those cells to then shift and thrive into something else. Because it is also another thing we know now is that cellularly, we turn over our cells every I believe it's about every 90 days that cellularly. So we're different now on, on a cellular level than we were year, two years ago, you know, or even three months ago in our body. And so the same thing is happening where y- your body is continuously getting that opportunity to either express itself or, or not with this disease state. And so I guess um, one question I would have then is how would someone know about their potential predisposition? I know in the book you talked about various testing that could be done. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I know this is the age of tracking and testing everything. Um. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think I'll use the 23andMe data if people still feel safe using their data, knowing that they're potentially selling your information, but you can use, you can use an alias and an alias email if you, if you want. Um, I think that's the cheapest and most efficient way to do it. And then you can run it through other um, systems besides 23andMe. Uh, there's, uh, I'll use Pure Genomics, which is by Pure Encapsulations, which gives a nice printout. There's much deeper ones. You know, you can just do a quick search on like, you know, how to, how to read my genetics. And there's ones you pay for that'll give you hundreds, if not thousands of potential uh, SNPs, they call them, single nucleotide polymorphisms that you have. And that tells you your predisposition. Um, I've run mine through one of those and it's, 
it's a bit overwhelming. I mean, there's like a hundred different cancers I could potentially get, you know, like some of them are so benign, you know, in the term of cancer, but I don't know that we want to know all that information, but we can. And, you know, but I think generally speaking that we find, you know, as my child is screaming in the background, I apologize. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, okay. We, <laughs> it's a little distracting. We, we find that, you know, there's just a general kind of, if you will, anti-inflammatory diet that's low toxins. That seems to be the fix-all for most things, you know. So why, in my opinion, why go too deep into that um, pile? It's, it's not super comforting, I think. It can be a little fear-inducing. You can even do it now, you know, with, you know, with children or even when, you know, women are first getting pregnant, there's much more advanced genetics that you can do now and know if your child is going to have asthma or diabetes or predisposition to that. I tend to think that can set us up for a little too much anxiety and worry. Uh, So I don't usually recommend it, but I do like to do, you know, like I said, the pure genomics report with my clients because it gives me some basics. There's, um, you know, the book Dirty Genes by um, Ben Lynch he goes over like, I think it's the top eight or 10 um, SNPs, the SNPs that are going to be the most influential negatively or positively in our lives. So why don't we just manage those and the rest will kind of take care of itself. Um, but yeah, so you can get your data. And then there's also, you know, other other places that use a bit of a different technology than how the 23andMe does it. It's a little bit more expensive and, you know, but there are doctors out there, a lot of those. Um, you know, some functional medicine doctors, but also like the cutting edge, I guess you would call them like anti-aging doctors that can, can do these reports for you as well. Sometimes I think it can be an information overload, you know, so it really just depends on the person. I think it's useful to just adopt the healthy lifestyle. And like, we know for certain that the, you know, since the 1980s, we've introduced, I think, close to 100,000 chemicals in our environment. And we know for certain that those chemicals are triggering immune responses and inflammatory responses in our body. And so even if you just committed to a, a less toxic lifestyle, you would cut your predisposition to these diseases um, significantly, right? So the, the, the phenotypic expression or the actual physical manifestation of the disease wouldn't likely not show up. But you'd still be able to pass it on. So it still has to be this thing where you're educating your children and you're talking to them about, you know, one thing I discovered when I ran my genetics through that very um, high tech one was that I'm a carrier for the advanced prostate cancer, which was um, actually gave me a lot of peace because my dad died at 63 from stage four prostate cancer, a very healthy guy was, you know, you know, a try like, you know, healthy in all the terms and happy and did all the right things, if you will. And it, um, it was very confusing to me knowing all that I know that I didn't understand why he got such an aggressive cancer and it, it got him so quickly, if you will. And once I ran the genetics and I saw that I was a carrier, it actually gave me a lot of peace because that's one of those things that like, he just had the predisposition for all I know, he had two copies of the genes, which makes it harder to fight that lifestyle, you know, fight with the lifestyle, if you will. Um, and we just, but it, it, so sometimes there's, I think, um, 
it helps you solve for problems too. But now I know that. And so now I can address that with my, my son, right? You know, like, okay, so at some point we'll do his genetics and we'll see, maybe, maybe I passed it on to him. Maybe I didn't. And, and if I did, you know, there's going to be certain things I'll put in place and make sure he follows for the rest of his life to prevent the manifestation of that disease. Right. Or you prophylactically, do you go and get your prostate removed? Maybe. Do you know what I mean? It's just like right. the women with the, you know, I'm forgetting the actual gene, but. Uh, the the yeah, it's the same thing of is, is that the best course of action? For some people, it might be. But again, that's where the genetics is, is showing us. And then so you'd still, though, have to do those lifestyle to, you know, because in Chinese medicine, we'll say, well, the cancer will just find another place. Like, that's kind of how we think. It's just like you still have to support your body in this way to prevent the illness from truly manifesting. And perhaps you could and not have to get the organs removed, but you know, for some people, that's the measure that feels the most comfortable. Right. But still, I'm sure all those women, you know, that we know of that went and, and did the, you know, if you will, prophylactic surgeries, they still follow a really healthy lifestyle, you know, and are trying to, to avoid anything that could be, you know, provoking to um, disrupt their estrogen in their body. You know? Right. No, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny to, when you were talking about the rheumatoid arthritis patient, I was thinking about my own path in being um, highly educated now on a lot of these things. And honestly, I'm still learning where I come from the pharmaceutical industry actually. And, you know, it's the way I've always thought was you have an illness, you take a pill. And through my own fertility journey, I've come to learn so much about health. And I know I've removed toxins. I actually, right before I moved, I tossed all of my, um, lit plastic, the ladles and whatnot, and I bought all, everything's metal, stainless steel now. So like all those things have been tossed. And I guess I just think about like, traditionally, most people do go to a, an MD and their training is also very traditional. Like you have an illness, you take a pill. And there's actually a book, I'm forgetting that it's called How Healing Works. I'm forgetting the name of the author, but you know, he talked about how when you have chronic conditions you know, the training for that is not necessarily there in medicine. It's really more about like, if you have this specific thing, here's a specific thing we can do. But then when it, once it hits chronic, it is a game changer as far as how treatment works. So how does someone who is struggling with something, like, what do you recommend as a path for finding these these answers because I know even for me it's been a 10-year journey and I'm still learning so like trying to figure out all the information you need to know when it's not in one place which by the way FemPower Health is trying to put it all in one place you know it's uh it's really hard and it takes a lot of time and meanwhile people are suffering so what would you say are like some key things people can do and the path to get there especially if they're getting resistance from the clinicians that they're currently seeing yeah I mean Sometimes it's, I think about finding a doctor that does support you and finding more answers, you know, like, like a Dr. Braverman, right? You know, he, he was, a, uh, I would call him a mad scientist, you know, and, and, a, and a detective, which is what I am, you know, I just basically a detective, like I just keep looking until we figure it out. Um, it depends on what the person is looking to fix, if you will, based on um, what tests to get done. But I tend to see functional doctors be the right route for people to go. And those are medical doctors who went and did additional functional medicine training. And so they're going to do really extensive 
you know, nutrient panels on you and they're going to do extensive thyroid panels on you and they're going to look for inflammatory markers and like your omega three to six ratios. And, you know, and obviously if you're dealing with fertility challenges and there's an autoimmune condition, you know, guys like Braverman or Vidali is now covering, you know, his uh, Dr. Share, Dr. Beers. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there, Kofinas, um, Dr. Kwak Kim, you know, I think they're, they're phenomenal doctors. There's not a ton of them, you know, um, in, in the U S especially that will go and do this, you know, these autoimmune panels, if you will. Um, and when it comes to fertility, I think it's a little deeper, you know, they're, they're looking, um, at, at how you and your partner are mixing as well, you know, and if there's any antibodies that are being created in the body, but, you know, a good endocrinologist could also do a lot of this testing for you if they're, you know, if they know what they're looking for. So you, you want to be looking at like the complete thyroid panel and clotting factors and, you know, someone who's paying attention to the MTHFR, someone who's looking at your vitamin D. So, but there are docs out there. And I, I mean, I'd go over that in body belief as well. And I know you'll have good resources for your, your people. Um, but I, what I tend to see clinically is it's doctors who have done additional training, doctors who are very aware of how nutrition is impacting our life and our health. If your doctor knows nothing about nutrition, I think it's the wrong doctor. And, you know, that's that. And, but I also say that with a caveat, like you might still need a really good endocrinologist if you have psoriatic arthritis and because they need to prescribe your Humira, but then you also might need a functional medicine doctor to work with in conjunction, right? So, you just have to formulate your team. And some people, like I say this to my girls all the time that are dealing with fertility stuff, like sometimes your fertility doctor just needs to be the guy that's going to collect those eggs and make the embryos and do the transfer or the girl. And then you have this other team, like, and I'm on that team and you have your functional doc and you have Dr. Braverman on that team. And we all think everybody has their part to play. So you, you, sometimes you have to compartmentalize just the way our system is set up. And, and sometimes it's a one-stop shop where you have one doctor and they can really cover all the bases, but it's really about detective work. And, um, and there are testing out there. I mean, it, there, there is, you know, there's like Cyrex Labs has a ton of really good tests that you can use. Uh, Vibrant America is one that I've been looking into and working with. And same thing, they have really good like immuno panels and nutrient panels. And so we can just start to look at the blood work. And then also like what I do is I, I look at the genetics too, and a lot of them do. And you, you, you sit with both of those things and then you figure out, okay, this is, this is what we can do to help best support your body. So it properly detoxifies. So it properly methylates and it you know, does all these things that will, regardless of your genetics and the predisposition will best support you so that you stay as healthy as possible. So let's talk about, because I, I will have to say, even though through my journey, I've tried a million different diets, it wasn't until I read Body Belief and um, went through the diet protocol that you outlined in the book that I finally was able to internalize, like, this is no joke about food and your health. Um, within a week, my anxiety disappeared to the point where I said to myself, hold on a minute. So I live at this baseline that I've been living with for so many years. I could have been my whole life. And by following the diet, I was so calm that I didn't realize I was living at this baseline that I thought 
was normal. Right. Um, and then my arm, my skin on my arms, I get, um, it's keratis pilaris, right? Is the pronunciation and gone. And so it was just really interesting to see, of course, my cholesterol went up and I think I emailed you, um, that the, the metrics haven't caught up. It was really funny. I had, um, my physical a couple weeks into the diet and, uh, but I will say it was a hard diet. And so I'd love to talk to you about, you know, maybe you could just outline some of the philosophies of nutrition and then the long-term pieces of it. Because I have my own takeaways of what I've done, but I'd love to hear from you as the expert around how someone can consider the nutrition piece of this uh, to maintain as healthy of a lifestyle as possible. Well, I think the first... I guess maybe belief is what I want to say that has to come through is that food is medicine and food should be the primary medicine. So the first thing we do, you know, even from a Chinese medicine perspective, how I was trained um, after my Western medical training, but is the first line defense is, is food. And to understand that basically if you're not if you're eating things that your body can't break down or digest or absorb, or you're maybe, you know, allergic is the wrong word, intolerant to that your body is not getting everything it needs and it's functioning. It's subpar. It's just subpar. And, you know, talk about that in body belief that I think majority of people are walking around at like 60 to 70% their wellness, you know, and it's, it's just like with you and that's okay. You know what I mean? It is what it is. You've learned to accept it. Like, I have anxiety. I'm just an anxious person. That's just who I am. Um, and yeah, what I've seen clinically is what you experience personally. That I usually joke 90% of my anxiety cases are either blood sugar issues or food intolerances. It's not really anxiety. It's something that you're ingesting every single day that is triggering a response in your body. And it's literally like, oh my God, it's making me buzz. You know what I mean? Just like certain people have like, oh, I can't touch caffeine. You know, I just can't touch it. Okay. So guess what? That is actually a react. It's a chemical reaction in your body. That's what's happening. So to start to first realize that food is medicine, and I think for some people that's really easy, and for others that's a big leap, you know, because, well, my grandmother, I mean, she ate McDonald's and smoked cigarettes, and she lived till she was 97. Awesome. You know, so I, my takeaway from that is, okay, you have some strong genes. That's great. Um, it's still not what I would recommend to anybody, but okay, you know, uh, who knows? She also probably grew up with, on a farm eating, you know, the, the cattle that was slayed in her backyard fresh and drinking the milk from the cow. So she had different, she got different groundwork than you did. So the first thing is to understand food is medicine. And then the second thing is to really, if you want to understand what we've done to our food sources over the last, you know, 40 years at this point and the amount of pesticides and chemicals and just looking at those alone, the, the chemical reactions they're causing in your body. And so, you know, to me, it's so much, and, and you read Body Believe, so you know, and I say this in the beginning of the book, I could give you the diet right now and I could tell you how much to sleep and when to meditate and all these things and what supplements to take, but I don't think that serves you. What, what serves you first is I want you to start to understand why you're not nourishing your body with the things that help you feel good. Why are you not in touch enough to realize like, oh, when I do that, this happens. And so can we start to connect the dots first and start to realize how worthy you are of proper nourishment, you know, mentally and physically and nutritionally and emotionally and spiritually. 
you know, I, I do all that in the book first to really warm people up and get them to understand, you know, that even if maybe you just, the changes are just that you're going to go organic and grass fed and eat really good quality food and, and detoxify the house, bath and beauty products, that alone probably makes a huge difference, right? And cut out soy, cut out corn, cut out all the processed, you know, the GMO foods. Um, you'd, you'd probably see most people would just dramatically shift. Um, but then to take it one step further and to really, you know, we can't promise cure of types of like autoimmune conditions, especially, but we can heal, we can start to heal. That's where you have to get very specific with food. So things we know for sure, um, we, you know, in this country has been highly, what's the word I want to say, I guess manufactured is a good word. Um, um, adulterated is another good word. And it seems to be causing chemical reactions in our body. People might not have celiac, but they might have a gluten intolerance. And most people are actually reacting to the pesticide, not the actual wheat. And that's something that I think I'm one of those people. I think I have a pesticide reaction, not a wheat reaction, but, and that's something I figured out over the years. Um, uh, so wheat, soy, uh, corn, those are our three most engineered products in the United States, and they seem to be causing the most harm and challenges. Then start to looking at things of like, is it normal to eat four handfuls of almonds a day? Did we do that in the past? Like, were they readily accessible? Where are those, what are they treated with? Are raw better than sprouted? You know, so then we start looking at like, beans and nuts and grains and what is what we see in the research um, and clinically for certain is that a lot of these foods are highly inflammatory and they're causing these inflammatory reactions some would go as far as you know leaky gut is um you know another common term used in this world where there's an immune reaction um and particles of the food actually the gut is supposed to be completely sealed off. It causes the gut to start to open up, becomes more porous and food particles get into the bloodstream that then causes an immune response. And every time you eat that, it causes this immune response, right? So in order to heal the gut and lower inflammation, we need to remove these highly inflammatory foods that are causing this porousness. And so the diet that I have and body belief that I've seen be the most clinically effective is basically an autoimmune paleo diet with a good amount of bone broth, um, which that ties in with Chinese medicine as well. We've been using bone broth to heal all diseases for thousands of years. It's not, you know, it's not trendy for us. It's like legitimately we see anything that comes from bone is very healing to the jing or the essence of the body. Autoimmune paleo is a tough diet. You're basically eating, you know, animal protein or fish protein wild caught or grass fed, you're eating lots of cooked, not raw vegetables, and you're eating lots of good quality fats. You're not eating nightshades, you're not eating soy or corn or artificial sweeteners or nuts or beans or seeds, right? I mean, you've done it, you know it, you, you cut everything out. It's not to say that they have to be out of your body forever, but you do that to basically help heal the gut that really lowers the inflammation. And then what I recommend in the book, and, and again, I did a ton of research too. There's not a single food allergy test out there that's accurate or precise that can give you exactly what you need to do for you to heal because they're, they're testing you while you're still either exposed to the food or it's, it's not, it's not as accurate as an elimination diet can be. So there's a lot of people that'll come back and be like, but I've, you know, I tested and I don't have a celiac or I don't have a dairy issue. Um, 
I still would, if you're still dealing with symptoms or very curious and looking to fix something that hasn't otherwise been quote unquote fixed, then elimination diet is what you need to do. And then you slowly reintroduce foods and you just note your symptoms. Like for you, your red flags would be like, okay, is the skin thing coming back? That's my red flag is my eczema too. And so the, the lectins are in the nuts and the beans and typically some grains, which are basically, I think Dr. Gundry says it best in his book, um, Plant Paradox. Um, lectins are make food really hard to digest so they can like tolerate the weather outside and the seasons and all the ex- extreme environments. And so when we ingest these things, very hard for us to break down and typically either build up in our system, which will then cause this kind of inflammatory uh, or immune reaction, or we just can't digest it and we just don't get any nutrition from it. And we wind up, even though people are like, oh, I eat so clean, but they're super nutrient deficient because they actually can't absorb or break down their food. Thank you for sharing that explanation of the elimination diet. And it is interesting, like, I don't know if it's helpful for the audience to hear examples. Like another interesting learning I had in my own experience is that, and I think a reminder is the, the intolerance to the food doesn't necessarily show up right away. So one fascinating thing for me is if I drink wine, three days later, I'm like just acting really off. And then I'm like, oh my God, it was the wine because I was really clean and I could notice everything. And so I think the other is it's not something right away. It sometimes can happen a few days later, which I thought was yeah, um, and interesting. It's, like, it's almost the, I always say to my girls, like the frequency and consistency is really what it is. So same with me. Like I discovered almonds. Almonds were a big trigger for me. I had no idea. I was like full on paleo, ate a lot of nuts. I, I've never done well with beans. So they just were easy for me to just never touch. Like I have a hummus once in a while. I'm fine. But nuts, almonds in particular, were flaring up my eczema, and I didn't realize it, but I was eating way too many. You know, we just shouldn't be eating that many things of one thing, I suppose, is a good way to look at it, although I don't know that I might contradict myself. But um, I guess foods of that nature, like not too many grains and not too many nuts or not too many seeds, you know, and even not too much flesh, you know, I, I still think flesh should be like, three ounces the size of our palm, you know, a couple times a day. The rest of our plate really should be vegetables. And I do think a broth because it's just so cooked down and so nutrient dense and fats and vegetables should be cooked in fats. It's the best way we can absorb all the nutrition. But the same thing for me was I realized the almonds were this trigger and I couldn't believe it. So same thing. I can have like a sprouted almond butter. I don't know, once or twice a week, perfectly fine. I go over that, mm -mm, eczema starts to come back. Same thing with like gluten. Like I've realized over these, I used to be hundred percent gluten free. Now I have like homemade sourdough has to be from organic. And la, 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 la. I typically make it myself. Um, same thing though. I can have like two servings of it. If I hit that third serving, I'm constipated and I'm going to be constipated for two days, three days, you know? Uh, but same thing, like I can have these little exposures and I, they don't cause these major flare ups anymore, which is what I also think is like a big takeaway for so many people is like, you follow this this way of living, this diet, if you will, for a period of time. Some people it's six months, some people like the girl you met at the funeral, it was, it was a year and a half on that diet. And I mean, she was ready to murder me, you know, because she still wasn't getting pregnant. Her fertility treatments were were still not being successful. 
but her symptoms were getting better. Like she had just joint pain. She had like loose bowels. She would have these sinus issues, these headache things. And I was, I would get fixated on the symptoms. I'm like, the pregnancy is going to happen. Like that's like, that's to me as an aside, that's when the body's like, I got enough. I got enough. I can do this now. Um, and, and then she gets pregnant. After eight years of trying, 20-some-odd failed fertility treatments, she gets pregnant naturally at 42. I mean, uh, yeah, Baverman, Baverman literally said, like, what the F did you do? Like, I need to know. And he's like, and I don't have time to learn all this, so just I'm just going to put you on the website, and you're going to do the nutrition with the girls. Like, he was like, I don't have time. I, my brain can't fit it. But um, for her, it was this frequency and consistency. And you know what the biggest thing that I pulled out of that diet was lentils. She was having properly cooked green lentils, like, every day she loved them. And I was like, I think it's the lentils. I think it's the lectins because her little annoying symptoms were not, and she still wasn't getting pregnant, which obviously was the, what she was coming to me for. What made, that might not be obvious to you guys, but when we pulled those lentils, things started to shift. Lentils and sesame seeds. And what's even more interesting, and you know this because you know a Braverman's work. So once you get pregnant, you know, he still does these immune panels, right? To see how the body's reacting, if he needs to adjust meds, things like that. So she got pregnant naturally, but I still recommended she worked with him because I just didn't want to lose the pregnancy after all that time and that work. She agreed. She needed more calcium because she was on steroids. And so usually I'll say, okay, have a spoonful of tahini every day because it's a really good source of calcium instead of taking an extra calcium supplement. She didn't feel like taking, she was like pregnant and not feeling good, you know, all that. So she starts eating tahini and we had cut seeds out. And she was loving the tahini because she was like, oh, God, I missed it so much. And then he, the immune panel, he calls her up and he was like, whatever you are doing, stop. Something is triggering your immune system again. Now, mind you, she's on like 20 milligrams of prednisone a day. Like you would think that would shut anything down. Mm -mm. She started having a reaction to the tahini again. And it was so validating, I think, for all of us. Like he even said to me, he goes, I really just never thought sesame seeds could do this much damage to a pregnancy. Do you know what I mean? And that's her case. That's not everybody's case, but it was so validating for all of us that this food was really triggering an immune response in her body to the point where it could have caused a miscarriage. We corrected it. And she has a one-year-old now and he's cute. That is so amazing. <laughs> yeah. I remember, um, yeah, she, she was telling she was me pregnant. that she had just given birth, right? When uh, no, she was pregnant. She was at the pregnant. Funeral. Yeah, yeah. And she told me that, um, uh, Braverman that you had said when she got pregnant, call Braverman right now because I want to keep you pregnant. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so a, a couple things, um, just, you know, to, I guess, hone in on the, the diet and just around some conflicting information we are hearing around things we should do for our body. So one is no plant-based diet. So, you know, admittedly, like I'm really trying to, you know, be good for the environment and you hear so much about meat and what it's doing to our environment. So, um, you know, I really struggled because I'm like, should I start to transition to plant-based? Because every Saturday I go to the farmer's market, I have my bone, uh, my chicken bone guy, I make my bone broth every Saturday night and um, make some soups out of it. But, you know, I'm like, but shouldn't I be good for the environment? So there's this conflict of like, I've done this diet, it works. The bone broth is amazing. My hair stopped falling out by doing it. Um, I also take the beef liver pills and, you know, but then a lot of people are being told you need to be plant-based. And then the other one with, when you mentioned the sesame seeds is there's the seed cycling that often helps women yeah. for like PCOS, et cetera. So like if you're in these positions where these things are helping you, but then you hear these other things that can help you, like how does someone 
figure this out? I mean, is it just as simple as working with someone, trying the different things and seeing how their body works? Yeah, and I think it's system-wise. Like, I think, you know, and I, and I, I do want to point out that I believe my diet is like 70% plant-based and I still think that's really important, you know? Um, I still want six to eight servings of vegetables a day in your diet. You know, it's mainly plants that I want you eating. I do want them cooked in a fat. It just seems to help you absorb, you know, and there's this argument. I mean, I think that's the thing too, is we can find arguments on any side of the coin these days. It's, um, you know, I tend to be very rooted in what I would call ancestral nutrition just because maybe that's how I was taught. But I think clinically too, I've just never seen a super healthy vegetarian. I just don't see them. It's very hard to get all your B vitamins and your choline especially. And they typically are deficient in some way. And so even if I can get my vegetarians to do fish, and if they can't do fish, okay, can you do eggs? And can you do some fish broth or even just the collagen peptides? You know, I see a big difference. A lot of times, I mean, especially if I'm getting a girl coming to me trying to get pregnant, she, you know, and I don't mean this in a way that I take advantage, but they are pretty much willing to do anything at, at that point. So even if I can get them to do eggs and take the liver pills and do some broth, I can, I, we, can we can get it done. We can get it done. You don't have to be eating meat or fish two to three times a day. You don't, I have vegetarian days for certain, you know, but I think in general, we still need, um, you know, Chinese medicine, we say, if a woman gives up blood every month, she needs to eat blood. It's just, that's just how we look at it. And, and I just, you know, I have 20 years of clinical experience at this point. I think it speaks for itself. Like I just see better health outcomes in people who, I don't see it in like, there's people who are like the carnivore diet. I don't think that's effective either. I think that's insane too, you know, but like, mainly vegetables and a little bit of good quality protein and, and fat, and you really should be the healthiest you can be. And so then I think going back to the environmental piece, I'd never once recommend eating anything commercially raised, right? So if that's fish, if that's meat, which that's where the impact is. If you're getting grass fed from good quality farmers who are doing the right thing, the animals are actually helping the environment because they're part of the ecosystem, right? The cow needs to shit in the grass in order for like the, the, you know, everything to happen and the bugs to come in and the runoff and like that is part of the ecosystem. So personally, I think we're doing right, but you really have to have good quality meat. And, and if you can't get good quality meat, then I typically am saying then, okay, then we're basically, you're going to take the liver pills and you're going to eat eggs and that's all you're going to eat because we can't get it. Like you can ask any of my girls, if you can't get the grass fed bones, I don't want you making the bone broth, you know? So, um, I do think that's, that's the differentiation and there are no studies showing us like more longitudinal studies showing us the difference of what grass fed good quality meat does to us versus the commercially farmed, all of those, you know, the China study and the, the forks over knives. Um, they're all, they're all actually based on the China study, which is based on epidemiological studies, which is not at all based on grass fed or quality meat. And it's actually all based on surveys, which is, you know, not really the gold standard at all in, in, in research, which, you know, all the scientists know that, but, but the media takes it a different way, you know? And I think ultimately at the end of the day, you got to do what feels good for you. If you, if you feel really guilty and horrible eating meat, then okay, maybe it's not for you, you know, but we could, and we can find other ways to get around it. 
um, and going to like the seed question and things like that, I only really pull seeds when I see obvious autoimmune symptoms, right? So there are a lot of girls that don't have autoimmune issues. There's a lot of people that don't. There's a lot of people that do. Um, so seed cycling, I still find really useful. I still recommend that they need to be sprouted organic seeds. They shouldn't be raw, you know, and, and, and in moderation, you know. So as, again, with seed cycling, we're talking like a teaspoon a day. We're not talking like four handfuls, you know. So I think it's that part, too, that we're – it's not just the food. It's how much of the food that we're consuming that is having the negative effects. And then the processing of the food. So are we meant to eat raw nuts? I don't think so, actually. If we look back traditionally, everybody soaked their nuts. Everybody soaked their beans. There was a little bit of vinegar, so it would break down the skin. You know, like that, it's traditional. If you go back to what traditions did, just the same thing with soy. Like miso can be so powerful when it's properly made, when it's properly consumed. Soy in soy milk or in like soy burgers is, is killing us, you know? And maybe that's extreme, but I feel that way. Okay. So that's really, that's really helpful perspective. And you're right. Like the, um, body belief, the diet in there does definitely talk, um, a lot about the vegetables. And I guess for me, the takeaway, just because maybe I make it so much is the bone broth too. And by the way, thank you for introducing me to a uh, culture ghee. I always have a stash <laughs> in my home. So a question for you though, about bone broth, cause it is, um, a really, um, important and helpful food, so to speak. And I wanted to talk to you about cooking it because I think you had also mentioned it in your book and I've read a lot about how long one cooks it. So I think what would be helpful because it is so nutrient dense and you've talked so much about, but it has to be the right kind of food. You can't just, because it's, you know, you know, a certain thing, you have to understand where it came from. So just because you're eating fish isn't good, where, what did it come from is important. Um, so when it comes to, to bone broth, how long should it be cooked for? And for those who are thinking, oh, so you're saying bone broth is important. Let me go get that carton at Trader Joe's. Um, so I've certainly transitioned since reading your book, but I think it would be helpful just to educate everyone on it um, so that they know and they don't just go buy anything off the shelf. Yeah. So I think the shelf stable ones, unless it's frozen in the freezer section, meaning and liquid, you know, and of course it's liquid in those boxes, but um, I don't think you should consume it because typically then it, it's given some kind of preservative to make it shelf life stable. To me, also, if you are buying it, you want to know their process. Um, how long are they cooking it for? Are they using chicken feet? Are they filtering their water? Do they use vinegar? The vinegar is really important in the cooking process because it helps break down the bones even more, helps things really get out. Chicken feet is is really important in making good quality gelatin rich bone broth because the feet have a lot of a lot of gelatin in there they say typically a broth you know 12 to 14 hours is what makes a broth i think a stock is like six hours you know some people the broth might be too fatty in the beginning so like the gaps diet which is the gut and psychology syndrome diet which is uh, natasha no is it natasha mcbride natasha mcbride um looking at my bookshelf. Yeah, I think Natasha McBride. Um, she'll start sometimes people with uh, stocks versus broths because they're not as like they're a little more watery, basically. So a little easier to digest. But the, the 12 to 14 hour cook seems to be kind of the window you want to really get everything to break down. And it's just a slow simmer. 
I do also use the Instant Pot, which is a pressure cooker and can get you to the same results, but only in 120 minutes. So uh, there's some argument about that, but is it as gelatinous? I tend to get a still a good gelatin with it. You'll know basically when it comes to room temperature and you get that kind of fat at the top, that, that thickness, it's like goopy. Um, that's the gelatin, that's what you want. I call it baby glue for my girls trying to get pregnant. <laughs> Uh, that's my term. I don't think anybody else has, uh, has coined that one. But um, if I do buy it, I tend to only buy it from one website. Uh, it's um, bonebroth.com, or maybe they changed their website. But you know, I could would get you the link. You could share it in the show notes because they cook it in filtered water and they use the vinegar and they cool it in the vats before they put it in their containers. That's the other thing because the frozen stuff you're buying is in plastic. So are they putting that in hot? And then you're basically undoing all the good because now you got all that BPA. Even if it's BPA-free packaging, there's still a BPA-like component in there that's not good for us. So it's another thing to think about. So yeah, I mean, similar to you, my best bet is I make it at home. I have glass containers. I pour, you know, separate it out in there, leave a little bit at the top so the glass container doesn't burst when it freezes. I let it cool, I freeze. Um, the other thing people get concerned about is the histamine content. And so if you are a histamine reactor, which some of you probably know if you are, but if you get headaches or sinus issues, chances are you're a histamine reactor. Um, and that's a lot of us. Um, your best bet is to not have any meat or animal product in the fridge leftovers for, uh, you know, don't consume it after two days, basically, because the histamine content just goes higher and higher. So the best bet to do with your broth is smaller batches, freeze them all, and then thaw as you need. You know, I thawed mine last night for today, and I consumed it all today. And so I'll do the same thing again tomorrow, you know, so I kind of, I try not to keep it in the fridge more than two days ever. And I don't really have a histamine thing. I just tend to see, um, I do better that way. Um, what else about broth? I think that's it. You know, the, the recipe I like and the book that I think is just the, you know, the bomb when it comes to this is nourishing traditions by Sally Fallon. Um, the Weston A. Price organization has been talking about ancestral nutrition long before the word paleo was ever on the market. Um, and they talk to you on how to make your own ferments and how to make your own breads. And you could even make your own uh, baby formula if you couldn't produce breast milk. You know, I mean, they very, it's, it's a Bible, not a cookbook. Someone said to me when they gave it to me like a decade ago. She also has a book called Know Your Fats. You know, another book that I, I love is Deep Nutrition. Um, that book is well-researched. She's a PhD, Shanahan, I think, Catherine Shanahan. She talks about, too, the importance of, of broth and good quality food and eating meat on the bones and, the you know, cooking your vegetables. And, um, and she does more of, like, an overview of, of the research and the history of food and the making of food, very similar to Weston A. Price and their work um, or Sally Fallon's work where it's, it's not so much like a diet, where it's, this is legitimately a lifestyle. And then you can start to see that, you know, animal products were just a side dish, you know, that's like, you're not the main part of the meal. And broths, everything were cooked with these healing broths that just, I think, really do help keep the gut lining healthy. And you can get some decent vegetarian broths, but it's still not the same level. But have I had, uh, I, you know, I can successfully work with the vegetarians again, like I said, if um, 
they're willing to do a couple things, you know, I think then we can just so we can get some of that, we need some of that gelatin in them and, and the choline, the choline is so important too, especially for fertility, but really just for any hormone balance, anybody who has hormones, which is all of us need choline. Right. No, thank you for sharing all of this helpful information. And I do think that understanding that food is medicine is such a foundation. And I know throughout my journey, um, I've gotten there too. I used to feel like it was a diet and once it clicks, um, it is truly magical. And then you can make choices like, okay, I'm going to have wine. Okay. In three days, I'm going to be grumpy. So I probably don't want to do something where I need to be happy because the wine's going to impact me. (laughs) Scout and Cellar wine is the only wine out there right now that um, actually tests for all the pesticides and for um, glyphosate and no sugar added to the wines. They don't do any of the, the typical manufacturing for wines. And even I myself, I just don't have a reaction to wine anymore like I used to. And so I can have some of their wine. Interesting. What was the name again? It's called Scout and Cellar. You go to amyrop.com slash wine. Okay. I linked to it. It's just Perfect. easier. Um, it's, you have to, it's mail order. So it delivers to your house, which is also kind of cool. And it's not that expensive at all, but they literally third-party test through UC Davis, every single batch. So it's not even just like the vineyard gets tested once. Every batch that they buy from these vineyards is third-party tested for over 200 different pesticides, including glyphosate, which most people are really, and then there's very low in sulfites because there's nothing added. The sulfites are, are like this added to make it basically preserved. Um, and there's no added sugar, which is typical what people are really reacting to. The pesticides and the added sugar. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I have found wine that works, but oh, there's well, thank you. one, you know, there's one purveyor out there right now doing it. Okay. Well, I'm glad I brought it up then, yeah. Yeah. but thank you. And, and I, you know, so just to summarize, you know, again, food is medicine and, you know, epigenetics is, is um, really something that we can have an impact on. Um, and maybe we can get into all the testing, maybe not, but as long as we understand the foundations around how we eat, our stress levels, sleep, and the environment, and even some of the things that we're dealing with mentally that we may have not figured out how to work through, I think are important in creating a holistic, healthier self. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that that takeaway for people to, because we've had so many great discussions here. No, I mean, I think that's really it. It's just, you know, I think the greater question too is how am I nourishing myself and, and how am I making choices that support the goals I'm looking to achieve. You know, I think that's a big question to ask ourselves with all of our choices from our relationships to our, our work choices, to our home life. How does this nourish and support me and how is it helping me move the ball forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it may seem hard. And I know some have said it can feel isolating, but I, you know, I won't speak for you, but for me at least it's made me take care of myself better. And maybe the way I used to live is different. And maybe it was hard to make the change because maybe the friends are different because they may not lead the same lifestyle. But honestly, like I feel so much more centered. Um, And don't get me wrong, I have many problems to solve, but (laughs) with myself, but it it really, when you make that transition, it's like, wow, this is like true self-care. And so I think it's, it's motivating to stick with it. It's motivating and it it feels good. It's just like, you feel proud of yourself. I think that's it. And, and not to say that you shouldn't feel proud of yourself if you don't make the food choices that we are recommending right here. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I think if it's right for you and you start to see the positive benefits, regardless of like, you know, if in my 
clinic, it's if they got the positive pregnancy test or not, but that they, they see all these other changes starting to happen and just more grounded and more in their body and just more, you know, like, like the color of their skin and their hair is and their nails and like all these things are changing and they, they're, you know, having healthy bowel movements every day. It's like, oh, wow. So this, this feels supportive. I, you know, I feel the, like people often say to me, I'm sleeping the best I've ever slept in my life. I have more energy now and I'm 45 than I did when I was 35. And, you know, it's like, yeah. And that's, that's then why you do it. It becomes the thing. And then sure, like, just like you, like, then I, I have my cheats and I know, I know what I'm setting myself up for. And sometimes that's okay. I, but I also know that I can recover, you know, it's not, it's not like a downward spiral. It's just, okay, I'm going to have that pizza because it looks really good. And tomorrow I'll be constipated and that's okay. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that too, because we certainly don't want people to think, do what's in the book, never make another change again, and good luck. <laughs> no, no, um, I so, live your life, but I also think you all deserve to be empowered, you know, and to know that a lot of this is in your hands, and you can you can make some big changes in your life and in your health, even if you were told you can't. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's such an important takeaway um, and so inspiring. So speaking of inspiration, let's end with what inspires you to keep going? I mean, you've made such an impact already. You know, the books you've written are often be- um, ahead of the time. And, you know, now you have a son, which I know adds to your plate and so many things going on, but you keep going with all these amazing things that you're doing for patients. And I know I'm grateful for it and we all are. So what, what keeps you going? I mean, you make me cry. You guys, you guys keep me going. Um, the The desire to uh, know more and learn more and, you know, I mean, I have a beautiful job. I help women become moms and, but I think it's so much more than that. It's really helping them become the best versions of themselves. And, and that's, you know, it's phenomenal to witness. So, you know, that's it. And the stories, the stories keep me going. You know, it's like, it's like how you've, got to me, you know, that like some woman is at, you know, this incredible man's funeral and is talking about, you know, the change that the impact that I had. I mean, that's it right there. Keeps you going. Uh Well, on the days where it's hard, because I know I can attest as well, being a mom is, is really hard. And it's always that battle of you know, doing the things you're passionate about where your kid is also your passion. Um, just want to say thank you for doing what you do and it keeps inspiring us all and keep at it. And we look forward to the next chapter of all the other information you'll be sharing. And I look forward to continuing to work with you because I always love uh, connecting with you, Amy. And you keep up the good work too. You're doing amazing work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Take good care. Say hi to your little one. I know he wants to see you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.